It is good to be together, good to be in the house of the Lord. We are still walking through 1 Corinthians together. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where we're going to be walking through uh, pretty much the first half of this chapter together. And so uh, looking at covering about 18 verses today, and then we'll simplify things a little bit over the next couple of weeks as we continue to talk about 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And I got to tell you, as uh, I was preparing the sermon this week and uh, praying through this and then watching all that was taking place, it has been an interesting couple of weeks um, in our world. It has been an interesting few days in our world. It has been an interesting few weeks uh, in the world of politics if you have been paying attention. I imagine that many of you by now have probably tuned out and turned off uh, the noise that is uh, our politicians, uh, but it has been fascinating over the past uh, few days, few weeks, uh, to just hear what all is coming out from the nations, what is coming from uh, Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, and uh, man, it's just been a, a very, very interesting time to pay attention to what's happening all over the world. Um, if you have not heard, um, just within a day, days, we have seen Israel and Hamas do what they do best and declare war on one another. And we are watching on video, unfortunately, now as two places just ravage each other um, through war and through destruction. And we are watching this unfold in live time. Uh, you can leave here today, go to your favorite social media channel, type it in, and you will see it uh, happening firsthand. All of that is happening in the here and now. It has been interesting to watch as well over the past week how yet another debate came and went with candidates who were supposed to be making the argument for why they deserve to be their next party's presidential candidate and hopefully one day commander-in-chief, only to turn a moment of decorum into a shouting match that is often found in the uncontrollable church nursery over two-year-olds fighting over the same favorite toy. That is almost how that debate felt. The only difference is the two-year-olds eventually are controllable. It has been interesting over the past two weeks to watch as a part of our government who just can't seem to get anything done, and so the one thing that they could finally agree on was voting out their top leader. And it's yet to be determined as to whether or not that was helpful or not. We have watched collectively over the past couple weeks as prices have soared, whether it's uh, goods, food. Um, I was amused yesterday as someone sent me a meme uh, that talked about Black Friday and said, maybe this year for Black Friday, we all have TVs, so instead of putting TVs on sale, we should try groceries. And I thought, yes and amen. What a good plan. That would actually be wonderful. Um, I would like that. We see soaring prices. We see gas prices constantly fluctuating, taxes fluctuating, increased homelessness, insurance costs going up, and yet we find ourselves asking this question, are these items that are now being discussed, particularly amongst our politicians, are these supposedly the, the issues we want discussed as a people who claim to be represented by we the people? And the answer to that question, I think we would all say safely today, is no. So as a Christian we can begin to wonder two things. One, you probably turn on the news and maybe you wonder, Lord, when are you coming back? 
Lord, this place is getting out of hand. Lord, our leaders, though they have been placed in the position they are in by your providence and grace, they have clearly lost touch with reality. And so, Lord, please do not tarry. Return soon. Maybe some of you have turned on your televisions and you are listening to your radios or your favorite podcasts and you wondered a second item. When it comes to we, the people, maybe you ask the question, well, what rights do we have as we, the people? Well, in our text this morning, Paul, and really what looks to be a defense of his own authority and defense of what looks to be his own leadership, actually addresses the rights that we now do share as Christians as they come from the Word of God. So this morning, we're going to get into this text and see how as believers in Christ, according to the Word of God, we do have rights. We have privileges. And we are called, as God's people, to enjoy them. Now, I want us to notice this morning in the text that upon sharing these rights and ultimately what looks to be a defense of himself, Paul actually is going to encourage the people, but at the same time, in the midst of calling people to holiness, which is what this entire letter is about, Paul's going to make one final point that would ultimately shake the church to its core. So let's just go ahead and jump into our text and see that today we have rights and how it is now those rights that should ultimately glorify God. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I would invite you to join with me. I'm in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. And once you have found your place in the Word, if you can and you are able, I would invite you now to stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God. Now this is Paul writing to the Corinthian Christians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1, Paul writes, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. 
For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Now, that was a mouthful to be reading together, and so let's go ahead and jump into this text. Upon initial reading, it seems as though Paul is defending his work, defending his call, maybe even defending his ministry to the Corinthian Christians, along with Barnabas, who was now with Paul. And yet what we see Paul doing is he's actually talking about the rights that he now enjoys and why it is that he is able to enjoy those rights along with the Corinthian Christians. Now, Paul opens by reminding the Corinthians of his apostleship, which they were not questioning at this point, nor had they questioned at this time. He then moves into the next section of the text where he then shares with the believers how he, along with Barnabas, have the right to earn a living and be rewarded, or better yet, paid for the work that they have done. Now again, in writing about this, Paul was not issuing a complaint against the Corinthian Christians, but rather he was sharing this as a good thing for us to be able to care for those who are called to shepherd us. More on that in a moment. Then we get to our final section of this text, and we see here the Corinthian Christians are being reminded of their rights through Paul's words, and ultimately in those words, he gives them one more word to challenge them and remind them of what it is that they are now called to do, which is where we ultimately see Paul slam the door shut on pride and call the Corinthian Christians to humbly remember their call and ultimately remember their purpose. So let's just go ahead and jump back into this text and see this morning that we today have rights. And there are three rights that I believe that Paul speaks to, to the Corinthian Christians, which are also the same rights that we have today. The first one is found in verse 1 and 2. Paul tells us that you have the right to live on mission. Notice how Paul presents himself as the person who has rights, and ultimately Paul's going to be the example throughout uh, the entirety of this text. Paul opens in verse 1 by saying, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Now notice that Paul is confirming the freedom that he now has and the rights that he now has in order to do the work that he has been called to do by God. And ultimately, Paul confirms this work and this word as he continues in verse 1 when he says, Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord. Now notice how Paul confirms here his apostleship through the fact that he has seen Jesus Christ directly. Remember the Damascus Road experience. But not only has he seen Jesus directly, but he can also claim to be an apostle because he was the one who was the workman for the Lord who ultimately helped plant the church that is now in Corinth. Remember, if you go back and read 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10, we see that it was Paul who was the one who helped lay the foundation. Thus, Paul is the one who preached the gospel, and ultimately it was Paul who was called by God to now plant this church. Paul confirms as much as he continues in verse 2 when he says, If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Paul says here, as those led to faith by Paul, as those who have been 
discipled by Paul. They now have the authority to speak and affirm the work that Paul himself had been called to do. So Paul, in the midst of defending his own call, now points us to the fact that we as believers today have the right to live on mission. Now, how do we know this to be true of ourselves? Well, we need to look no further than the, the, just the literal meaning of the word apostleship. It literally translates as one sent on mission. Now, as a footnote, this does not mean that we can now be considered one of the originals who walked with Jesus. We are not one of those apostles, nor have we seen Jesus directly the way Paul has. However, as those called to follow Christ, we are also called to continue the work. In other words, we are called to live on mission the same way Paul did. We as believers in Christ today are called not only to live on mission, but we are also called to share with others about the good news of Christ, to lead people to the throne of grace, which is found in Jesus Christ, and to ultimately see people discipled in the name of Christ. This is the whole purpose of why we have the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, when it calls us to make disciples of the nations. We are the ones who are called to be sent once. Paul actually affirms what it is that he's writing here when he writes to the Roman church in, in Romans chapter 10, verses 14 and 15, when he says, but how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And then the very last question he asked, and how are they to preach unless they are sent? As God's people, Chosen by God, set apart for the purpose of Christ, called to Him, called to His glory. We need to see that we now have the right to live on mission. Because we have been sent. And so the question I want to ask us this morning is this. How are we living on mission right where the Lord has us? How are we making much of Jesus Christ? How are we making Jesus known to those who desperately need grace? And we don't live in a place or a time or a society where we can say, good news, everyone is covered in grace here. We have nothing left to do. That's not true. In fact, to give you some perspective, according to recent studies, there are currently 8 billion people on this planet. Out of the 8 billion people, 3.2 billion, or roughly 40% of the world's population, remains unreached. In other words, there is no one there to share Jesus Christ with them. There is no church. There is no Bible in their language. And then here's the crazy part. Out of the, the 40%, many of them are coming to the United States. We have people who are moving here permanently who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, brothers and sisters in Christ, you now have the right to live on mission. Yes, you, you may not be called to the nations, and that is okay, but God has clearly called you right here and right now. And so, what are we doing to make much of the gospel? What are we doing to make the gospel known? Because there are people all around us who need 
the good news of Jesus Christ. Some of them, dare I say, will come to your door and knock, answer, and share Jesus. Some would say at this point, but pastor, where do we even begin with sharing the gospel? I don't know where to begin with that. I would say to you, begin with prayer. Are you praying for your neighbors? Are you praying for your coworkers? Are you, are you praying for your family? And not just praying for them in general for felt needs to be met, but I mean, but I mean praying that they would come to faith in Jesus Christ through the proclamation of the gospel. As those who are called to the right to live on mission, we are a people who now pray for the advancement of the kingdom and the proclamation of the gospel. Now, as we come back to our text, I want us to notice that Paul is just getting started. And so Paul opens by saying, listen, as believers today, you have the right to live on mission. But then notice he moves on from there in verses 3 through 14, and he gives us our second right, and he says this, you have the right to earn a living. I mean, just think about that for a moment. Some would hear that today and say, yes, praise the Lord. I have the right to make money. Yes and amen. Thank you, Jesus. I have the right to earn the reward. Yes and amen. Thank you, Jesus. I have the right to make a living and, and build a home and a, and a family and, and a car. And, and because we live in Florida, maybe one day you own a boat. Why? I don't know, but you do. Yes and amen. Praise the Lord. This is good. Well, Paul was saying the same thing to the people. He was saying it is good to earn a living. And not only is it good to earn a living, but it was even good for Paul to say that of himself and of Barnabas about their own ministry. Look with me again in verses 3 through 6. Paul says, and this is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Now notice that Paul now gives a defense to his work. He gives a, a defense to his call and why it is that he now deserves support from those he is serving. Now what we see Paul doing is he actually rattles off a list of rhetorical questions to which the obvious answer for the Corinthian Christians to Paul should be, well, yes, Paul, you were correct in everything you were saying. But notice how Paul uses the example of the right to eat and the, and the right to drink and the, and the right to take on a, a believing wife. Now don't mishear Paul for a moment, okay? Paul's not trying to downplay marriage at this point. He's not trying to say to you, hey, your spouse is as good as a pepperoni pizza. That's not what he's saying here. Okay? Rather, what Paul's doing is now making the argument that he, along with Barnabas, just like the other apostles who have been sent out to plant churches, they now have the right to pursue financial support as one living on mission. In fact, Paul is, is now making the case that in taking on a believing wife, he says, listen, if I was married as some of the others were, then that financial support should be enough for me to be able to support my family as well. So you see, Paul not only talks about his, his right to earn a living, but in his role, he says, look, I should be making enough to be able to provide for my family as well. Now, this was important because there, there were many in, in Paul's camp, especially in Corinth, who were, who were looking at the ministry of Paul. And they were looking at the ministry of Barnabas, and they were saying to them, hey, it's good what these brothers do, but we don't have to care for them. It's good for what they do, but we don't have to take care of them. 
We don't have to support them because their reward's going to be in eternity. In fact, there were some that were making the argument, hey, Paul, thanks for coming to Corinth, but you really shouldn't be working at all. Your focus should just be on the church, and, and, then, and then don't worry about the resources. God will just take care of it. It'll just magically show up. And so Paul here makes the argument that, that due to his ministry, his work, his call, he should in some way, shape, or form receive financial support. Now, some would argue at this point, now wait a minute, Paul, in making this argument, isn't this a bit self-preserving? Isn't it a bit self-inflating for you to ask for money for support? Well, I want to ask you this question. Would you, thinking of your current jobs, would you want to offer your services to that job for someone to simply look at you and say thank you and never pay you for it? Think about that. Some of you in here serve as nurses. Some of you in here serve as teachers. You've been teachers. You are teachers. How many of my teachers in the room, after dealing with weeks of crazy children and even crazier parents, how many of you would just love a high five from your school board and say, well done, with no pay? <laughs> Something tells me you won't be doing that job very long. A couple of you guys are building inspectors in here. You crawl into places that I will never go in in my own home. Would you be okay if your boss came to you and said, well done, here's a gift card to Chick-fil-A. And that was all you received. You wouldn't be okay with that. I remember in college, living with a group of guys, befriending a group of guys, uh, several guys had kind of started a group together, a group that prayed together, that read the word together. There's a group of brothers who all had sensed the call of the Lord to go and, and to be faithful pastors and missionaries and evangelists. And it was just such a fun group and a fun time to be around. Uh, we studied the Word of God together, um, but there were several weekends where we would all be dispersed and, and, and kind of preaching in different places, whether it was revivals or, or discipleship opportunities or weekend uh, retreats or even just speaking at churches. And what we would do is on Sunday nights, when everybody was back, because we all had school on Monday, we would gather late in the evening for the purpose of prayer to be reminded that why we do what we do, we get to do because of the glory of God. And so we wanted to keep that in front of us so that we didn't become arrogant and prideful about the work the Lord had called us to do. And I remember on one such occasion, a certain friend of ours was really late in getting to that prayer time. And he had been sent out to preach a revival. He had to pay for everything. He had to pay for his airfare, pay for his rental car, pay for all of his meals, pay for his hotel where he was staying. He even tried to stay in a, a church member's house that was there and they refused him, um, not because he was mean or ugly or anything, but because they felt their house was awful. And so he had to end up booking his own hotel room. And after a weekend of preaching, Friday night, uh, three messages on Saturday, a message on Sunday morning, a Sunday afternoon lunch, and then a Sunday evening service, he got ready to leave, got back on a plane, came back home. We asked him how his weekend was. He said it was great. He told us about everything that he did. We jokingly said, well, praise be to God. Hopefully they're going to re reimburse you for all your travels? And he said, they sure did. And he said, and here it is. And he pulled out his bag, a, a paper plate, an aluminum foil of chocolate chip cookies. I'm going to go ahead and tell you, they weren't even good cookies. I don't know who that person is or where they are right now, but I, I hope they have learned a better recipe. Either way, I say all that to say, when it comes to faithfully shepherding, our resources, and faithfully caring for those who are called to lead. we got to do better. 
we got to do better because God has given us all the right to earn a living. Now, coming back to the text, notice how Paul makes a comparison now between him and Barnabas and Cephas, or better yet, Peter. He says this, if Peter is receiving support, shouldn't we? Now, here Paul makes the argument that like Peter, he has the right to earn a living and the right to ask for support from the local church. And so what was happening was the church was trying to say, wait a minute, uh, we're going to give to this one, but we're not so sure about this one. And so we get to verse 7, and Paul then gives us the example of the soldier, the planter, and the shepherd. And here's his point. He says, what happens in the natural day-to-day of life, being paid for a service, being paid for work, should also be expected in the spiritual day-to-day as well. So like those who work normal jobs, those who shepherd the people, those who are sent out on mission, should expect some sort of support. And so Paul continues in the text. And we then begin to see not only the the secular day-to-day claims, but now we see the the spiritual claims for his reasoning as to why we now have the right to earn a living. Look with me at verse 8. He says, Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses that you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material from you? Now again, Paul here speaks not just as a, a pastor to the people or a missionary, but he actually uses some rabbinical language here and, and points the people back to Deuteronomy chapter 25 to further justify his necessity and his right to make a living. And in doing this, Paul is hoping that the Corinthian Christians would see that even the word of God itself affirms what the natural world calls good, which is the right to earn a living. Now, the examples that Paul uses, he gives us the example of the oxen, the plowman, and the thresher. And then we get this really odd question in verse 9 where Paul asks, is it for oxen that God is concerned? Now, upon initial reading, we may look at that and say, okay, really, why would God care about the animal? I mean, what an odd example to use, Paul. You, you, you could have used a lot of examples here, but you chose the oxen. We could have made better examples. We could have said, hey, just as the emperor gets dues, shouldn't I get dues? No, no, he went with the oxen on this one. But notice what Paul's doing here. Paul's making a very typical rabbinical argument from lesser to greater. He's using an argument that they would understand. He says, listen, if the oxen are fed when trampling the grain, and then the plowman plows and thresher separates the grain in hopes of being paid, and they are, then surely someone serving in this capacity, Paul's capacity, and sharing the gospel, and going out to proclaim the gospel, surely they should be able to earn a living as well. Notice that Paul is teaching here that the work done in this world should be rewarded. People have the right to earn a living. They have a right to earn a living with the work that they now do. Then we get to verse 11, and Paul says, and if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Paul says here, listen, those who sow spiritual things should be able to reap material rewards. You see, for Paul, he believed that if those who labor deserve to earn a living, And if those who labor deserve to earn a living, then those who do the spiritual work as a vocation should be able to earn a living as well. Brothers and sisters in Christ, hear Paul's words. All of us have the right to earn a living. 
All of us do. Now, that doesn't mean, don't mishear Paul. He's not saying, if you serve the church, you ought to get paid for your service. No, we'll talk about that in a moment. But what Paul does say is this. If all of us here today have the right to earn a living, then so do our missionaries. Our missionaries need support. Let's not shortchange those who are leading spiritually simply because they are just called to it. we gotta, we got to get out of the American mindset where we've often looked at other pastors and missionaries and we say things like this. Well, you're the one who's been called to it and, and obviously because of that you should be okay and accepting of just being next to homeless because you should just know that your reward is in heaven. That's unacceptable for us as believers when it comes to supporting our missionaries. All of us have the right to earn a living. So let's not rob one another of that right. You know, it's interesting. Several years ago, we were doing a study through the North American Mission Board, and we found out that out of a class of 24 missionaries, a class, what I mean by that is this, a group of men and their families come together, believe, and sense they have been called by God to go faithfully serve on mission throughout North America. Okay, so that includes Canada too. All right, why we include Canada? They need the gospel. Okay, they need the gospel, which is a good thing. I'm okay with that. But these missionaries were going all over the U.S. They were going to major cities. They were going to rural areas. It was a wonderful, wonderful thing. And here's what happened. Out of the 24 who went through the training, who then got sent out, do you know how many of them five years later were still on the field? One. Number one reason? Not enough support. Not enough support. Their jobs that they were working on top of the expectation of being a full-time pastor and a full-time missionary, it just wasn't cutting it. And so what was happening was this. The churches were not faithfully supporting the mission. You see, here's, here's where I became convinced when it comes to missionary training. I believe that not only should missionaries walk through training as, as some part of, of preparing them to go overseas, but I also believe, or, or through the nations, wherever they go, but I also believe that whoever their send to church is, whoever that host church is, I think they should walk through training as well so that they, way they can know how to better support a missionary financially, how they can better support a missionary emotionally, or how they can better support a missionary with resources. Because that's one thing that we have failed to do. Paul continues in verse 12. He says, if others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Now catch this. He says, nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Now I want us to see here in verse 12 that Paul's actually giving us a little bit of foreshadowing of what's coming in the later verses. But I want us to notice that Paul doubles down on his right to earn a living. He says, nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. So he acknowledges the right that he has, but he also says that he's not, he's not made use of it. In other words, Paul has not taken on any of this support. And he says, because we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Now, some have interpreted this passage and said, and this is why we shouldn't financially support our missionaries. But that's not at all what Paul's talking about. 
You see, for Paul, his his love for the people, his desire to see them come to faith and then to grow in their faith led him to not take this support because he didn't want to hinder them or give them another burden to consider. In other words, in saying these words or writing these words, there are actually two thoughts at play here for Paul. First of all, Paul didn't take the support because he wanted to separate himself from the false teachers who were now coming into the church and taking whatever they could. They were walking into the church and saying, I have been given a new word by God. And if you pay me $50,000, I'll tell you what it is. Boy, doesn't that sound familiar? So Paul says, no, I'm not taking this support. And here's why. Because I want you to see, Corinthian Christians, that the gospel of Jesus Christ truly is a free gift. It's a free gift. Secondly, for Paul, He didn't take the support because in Greco-Roman days, anytime money exchanged hands, the two people involved in the exchanging of the money then entered into a patron-client relationship where one was paying for a service. And so Paul didn't want the church to see himself as their client who they could then place unrealistic expectations upon, thus hindering and limiting his ability to proclaim the gospel. You see, Paul did not want to be limited in the work that he was called to by taking money and then having an unrealistic expectation placed upon him. Man, doesn't that feel familiar? It sounds familiar because I can't tell you how many pastors that I've had the opportunity to counsel where people have said to them from their churches, they've said to them, hey, listen, we pay you, you now work for us. Okay, let me establish something real quick. First of all, that has never happened to me here. But secondly, let me say this. That pastor works for Jesus Christ. And you and I ain't him. That money we give goes to the mission and ministry of the church that we believe that pastor has been called to shepherd. So our responsibility is to shepherd that pastor. We are members of the church together. We're not the board. I digress. Verse 13 and 14. Here we go. Paul says this, Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Notice Paul comes back to the argument that those who are vocationally doing the holy things and shepherding should be financially supported by the churches that are called under their care. Again, notice how Paul references here the temple service and those who serve at the altar. Ultimately, he's saying that there were some who received from the sacrifices as food. Again, this is referencing what happens with the priests in Numbers chapter 18 and Deuteronomy chapter 18. Paul also notes that even those serving at the altar in the Old Testament themselves also had a right to earn a living. And then Paul closes this whole thing together by bringing us back to the argument that Jesus himself made in the Gospel of Luke chapter 10 when he says that a worker deserves his wages. Thus for Paul. Faithfully serving vocationally for the Lord deserves some sort of financial support in order for that particular person to be able to care for themselves and care for those under their care. Now again, brothers and sisters in Christ, I look, this sounds self-serving. I get it. So what does this have to do with us? All of us, as those working here, All of us have a right to earn a wage. All of us have a right to earn a living. But that right doesn't just stop with us. It also goes to those 
who are faithfully serving on mission. It also should go to those who are faithfully serving the nations. Those who are seeking to advance the kingdom. Those missionaries are are not in the places they're in, serving in the places they're serving, simply so they can serve our every whim. But rather, they are pastors. They are pastors who are faithfully called to teach and to shepherd, and ultimately, it's our responsibility to care for them in the same way our jobs care for us and allow us to earn a living and be rewarded for the work that we are now doing. Now, i got to tell you, all this sounds really good so far. I mean, think about it. you got two rights you're looking at right now. you got the right to live on mission. I'm good with that. Like, yes, let's go. Okay, Paul had me at that one. Then he throws on there, hey, you've got the right to earn a living. I'm still with you, Paul. We're good. Let's go. But then notice what Paul's about to do. He's about to shut the argument down and explain why he doesn't ask for anything and why he does what it is he's called to do. Look with me in verses 15 through 18. Paul teaches us this. He says, you have the right to surrender. Now Paul here picks up on what he began to say in verse 12, but ultimately his argument is now going to take a sharp turn. Paul says in verse 15 that he would rather die than securing any such provision. Why? Because he doesn't want anyone to deprive him of his ground of boasting. Now notice that Paul is not wanting to boast about his own sacrifice, but rather what Paul is boasting about is the gospel of Jesus Christ and what the gospel has done in his life. In fact, read verse 16 with me. He says, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. Notice that Paul now is referring back to his apostolic call and explains why he has no need to boast. And he says, look, I have no reason to boast because I am compelled to preach the gospel. This is what Christ has laid upon me. You see, Paul, after encountering Jesus Christ directly, after receiving this call, he speaks as if he has no choice but to preach Jesus because he encountered Jesus on the Damascus Road. Now what's incredible to think about is this passage literally parallels what Jeremiah says about himself in Jeremiah chapter 20 verse 9 in the midst of of being surrounded and insulted for proclaiming the word of God he wishes to stop and yet in verse uh, verse 9 Jeremiah says there is in my heart as it were a burning fire shut up in my bones and I am weary with holding it in and I cannot like Jeremiah Paul cannot stop what he has been called to do. And that is preach the gospel. Man, I get it. People often look at me and they say, Pastor, why do you get so fiery and excited in the pulpit? Because I get excited about this word. It's, uh, there's a word that, is, that has just been shut up in my bones. It's like a burning fire and I'm tired of holding it in. Okay. I'm going to go ahead and let you in on a secret. I normally start sermon prep on Wednesday. By Wednesday night, I'm ready to preach, dude. And it's not because I like standing here. It's definitely because I look good. That's not true. It's because we get an opportunity to proclaim the Word together. 
In other words, we have the opportunity to surrender ourselves, to surrender our motives, to surrender our thoughts, and just be faithful to the gospel call upon our life according to the word of God. And I can think of nothing better to do with my life. In fact, Paul continues in verse 17. He says, man, I'm still, even if all this fails, I'm still entrusted with a stewardship. Meaning this, that Paul is compelled to preach and nothing nor no one will silence him or shut him down. For he will be faithful to that call. Verse 18, he says, and what is then is my reward? To which he answers his own question, that in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Here we get a glimpse of Paul's passion. We get a glimpse of his character. Paul did not care about being paid. What Paul cared most about and what he wanted the Corinthians to see, and oh, by the way, this would be kind of the foundational verse that's going to really carry us through through the rest of chapter 9. Paul wanted the Corinthian Christians to understand that along with him, they had the right to surrender. Thus, we see Paul calling the church to follow him and surrender themselves to gospel proclamation. As so, brothers and sisters in Christ, I want to ask you today, as those who have received the gospel, as those who understand the grace of God that is found in Christ Jesus our Lord, the same God who revealed himself to us, do we see today that one of two things is happening in our lives. We are either enslaved to sin and we have surrendered ourselves to sin or we are enslaved to righteousness and thus have surrendered our right for the glory of God. And as those enslaved to righteousness with the rights laid before us and the freedoms that we now have, remember the freedoms we talked about a week ago, Paul says, even with all these freedoms and all these rights, you need to remember that you have the right to surrender. Because your ways are not his ways. Remember the prayer was, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Have we surrendered ourselves to the gospel? Have we surrendered ourselves to the call that God has placed upon our life? Or are we simply just going through the motions, saying that we believe and yet practicing nothing? And I'm going to tell you today that I am convinced that it is impossible to claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ and yet separate your normal life from Christ. Yeah. I believe they're intertwined. I believe that if you, are, if you are truly in Christ today and this gospel has shaped and changed your life and your world, then I believe there is no way to now separate the gospel from the life that you have been called to live. Yes, amen. And so you may want to ask, well then, how do I know I'm doing well with this? Well, let me ask you. When was the last time you shared the gospel? When was the last time you presented the gospel? Are you even comfortable with sharing the gospel? Which, by the way, I don't want to offend anybody today, but it just doesn't make sense to me that we have the greatest gift the world has ever known, and yet we are uncomfortable sharing it. Like, how does that work? 
And, and, and that may have stepped on some toes. And I don't, I'm, maybe I do mean to. I don't know. What I'm really looking for is this. I hope that as God's chosen people, we not only have a passion for the advancement of the kingdom, but then we have an, a comfortability, if you will, of gospel proclamation. Because we have co-workers that need the gospel. We are going to encounter people at places that we interact with, whether your car breaks down, or you're at a restaurant, or dare I say you get pulled over. Even those folks need the gospel. You have family members living in your own home that may need the gospel. We are coming into the holiday season. Many of you, whether you want to or not, are about to share a meal with family, whether you like them or not. I don't know. Are you sharing the gospel? Do you see the opportunity that is before you in worship? In worship, being with the faith family, is it a priority? Or is worship together with the faith family an afterthought? Here's here's the truth I want us to think about. How we treat or think about worship will reveal what we believe about the Word of God. And what we believe about the Word of God will reveal our passion and desire to make the gospel known. And our passion for the gospel will ultimately reveal our desire to surrender to Jesus Christ. So I ask, what have you surrendered yourself to today? Are you surrendered to Christ or are you surrendered to the ways of the world? You see, Paul wanted the church to know that they had freedom and yes, they had rights. Even for Paul, he himself had rights. And so in speaking to the church, Paul says, listen, you have the right to live on mission. In other words, you are now the sent ones with good news upon your life and good news upon your lips. And not only do you have the right to live on mission, but you now have the right to earn a living because you should be paid for the work that you were doing in order to be able to care for your family. But at the same time, our missionaries need that support as well. Our pastors need that support as well. And they should be cared for as well. And not only that, Paul says, but you also have the right to surrender. Meaning this, the gospel of Jesus Christ should compel you to move forward in advancing the work of the kingdom that you have been called to right here, right now. You see, I'm a big believer in singing. I love to sing. I'm not the best singer. I'll admit that. Um, I grew up with music in my home. Loved it. Uh, Dad had a record player. Kind of wish I had a record player um, in my house so music would be playing, whether it was just background noise or just good music, you know, all kinds of music. I just like it. And again, my kids will attest, I'm not the best singer. I try to sing with my older two in the car. and grace, they shut me down. And thanks be to God that no one else has to suffer through that. However, I am a believer that when it comes to worship, when we sing, read the words and make sure you believe what it is you're singing. And I thought about that because earlier this weekend, I had a hymn album playing and one of the hymns that came up was I Surrender All. And I thought to myself, have we? 
Have I? Have I surrendered all for the sake of the gospel? How can I sing these words if I don't truly mean them or live them in my life? I love what Dwight Moody says about this point, a modern theologian. I'll give you a new one today. He says this. He says, let God have your life, for he can do more with your life than you ever could. Yeah. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, surrender yourself to the gospel, knowing that it's the gospel that has called us to Christ. It is the gospel that compels us to advance the kingdom. It is the gospel that tells us we have the right to surrender. Let's pray together. Oh